Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Fan Fuel, a podcast where fans fuel talk about motorsports. We're your hosts, Alex Harrington and Nathan Ball, and today we'll be joined by my dad, Ace Race Flagman, as he's called, Chad Harrington. Uh, but first, we'll get into the Formula One season opener from Bahrain. You and I watched that pretty closely this weekend, Nathan. Um, it started off pretty stout with qualifying. It was a really interesting session. Um, there was a couple of points that were pretty interesting to me. Um, most notably, Sebastian Vettel. Like you said um, last week during our Formula 1 preview, he didn't really come into the season with hitting the ground running, um, and he did not get out of qualifying one. Yeah, that was pretty interesting to me. It looked like um, it looked like Sainz had some sort of issue in one of the turns, which brought out the yellow flag, and then there was another uh, – yeah, Mazepin spun out brought out a yellow flag which he was on his flying lap right when that happened so he had to slow down and at the point in time there was no there was no opportunity for him to get another uninterrupted lap in which is why that took him out of q1 yeah and that's bound to happen it just sucks for him because he's at that new spot uh with aston martin racing and he didn't get to showcase any sort of speed because he got trapped by that yellow um and that wouldn't be the first time that that we'd see uh some controversy for this season probably going forward in qualifying because that's just something that's cool about formula one qualifying having the three rounds sometimes you don't get you don't get that chance because of how their caution procedures work um but later on two sessions go by and i think max verstappen pretty much did what we all expected him to do, and he went out there and won the pole um, over both the Mercedes drivers. Yeah, I was pretty impressed with that in qualifying because even with the Mercedes issues, they were still pretty close all day on Sunday and on Saturday. So the fact that they were still able to win the pole with damage on the car was pretty impressive. Yeah, and it was it was interesting, you say, with that damage on him. He ran over one of the curbs um, and tore part of the – floor off you could see it flying in the replays and stuff and you know as fast as that car was to still come out on on top after the end of that session just just shows you how good of a drive max is in in a single lap uh but he was pretty decent in the race as well um he was one of the guys that that we were looking forward to kind of guaranteed himself on the podium but it wasn't without controversy on sunday uh because there was an incident when he was trekking down lewis where he did pass him he had to give up the spot though because he ran out of track limit so i wanted to ask you nate um to me the term four runoff is kind of inviting for those guys and it seemed like during testing and qualifying the stewards were kind of back and forth just a little bit on everything but then they put their foot down right there at the end of qualifying and and, and in the race. I mean, with that incident in particular, did you see anything that Max could have done um, better? Uh, I just think he was going for it, and he really didn't need to give that spot back up. Yeah, I don't think there was anything he could have done differently there because I think the whole reason he ran wide was to avoid contact, knowing that in F1 or most road racing series, if you – try to pass somebody on the outside, they will usually do their best to push you off the track and say, okay, we had the racing line and 
all sorts of excuses for that, which I don't agree with, but that's just how F1's been for years. So he's had to go as wide as he could just to avoid contact because the last time someone tried to pass Hamilton on the outside, they got spun. So right. thinking of it that way, he probably had that in the back of his mind and thinking, look, I got to get away from this guy as soon as I can. And I see a lot of people saying Max could have waited the next lap and, you know, sure, hindsight's twenty twenty, but honestly, with how difficult it is to follow in dirty air, I don't see any reason for him to wait because that was probably his best chance to make a pass. Well, not only that, I mean, if you're if you're going to be racing for a win, you've got to take that chance, anyways. I mean, that's eighteen right. points versus twenty five points. You know, that that's a big difference going on in the in the length of a championship, especially for a team that's also trying to win constructors with a new driver. Um, so I don't know for me, I, I kind of think Lewis kind of went a little bit cheeky and kind of pushed him oh, wide. Yeah. Cause I, he did, he I didn't, he didn't at all too. hit that apex. Right. Cause I'm, I'm sure he was thinking, look, I'm either going to, I'm going to make him choose between either making contact or running wide and risking a penalty. And he, that was sort of really clever driving to sort of put his opponent in a position where nothing was going to come out good from it. Yeah, but I don't think when I was watching the broadcast that the FIA said anything to Max. Did no, did, I, did, did Red Bull pull him back radio, or what? The radio um, from Red Bull said that the FIA came over a corner later to tell him to give up the place. And gotcha. The commentators I heard were saying, oh, why didn't he wait until the front straightaway to let him by so they could get DRS? And Max said, you know, I don't, he doesn't think it would have been fair if he let him by and got DRS immediately, so that's why he let him by early and obviously judging by that it shows you why he tried to pass in turn four because after he let Hamilton by it was so much harder to follow him through the high speed yeah. corners with dirty air so it shows you that you have to you have to get the pass done before the high speed corners or else you're just going to lose your ground yeah and that too I mean at least the earlier you you give yourself more space i know it's just a few corners but the earlier you give this position back you can have more room uh i guess in the long run to to make up some ground i know it's half a lap so it's kind of negligible negligible around uh secure but i mean he tried his best after that to get the move done um but i mean that was probably the biggest controversy of the race weekend uh for me just because i feel like it's a lose-lose situation for Formula One because they could police Lewis for pushing him out wide by yeah. saying nothing to Max. But then again, if they do that, they open up the door for everyone else to run wide right there at turn four, which they had tried to been closing down on the whole weekend. So, yeah, I don't that's know. The, that's the thing is that a lot of the both of the team principals were saying the same thing about how it needs to be a black and white rule because Hamilton had run wide twenty nine times in the race right. off of turn four, all four tires passed the white line. And then only midway through the race, they figured out, Oh, now you can't do that anymore. And it's like, they're, you can't just keep changing mid race like that or mid session because they have to come up with the rule that the drivers know before the race. So they know what to do in the situations. Cause I don't think the drivers did anything wrong. It's just the rules were not officiated consistently. Yeah, and and you know Formula One drivers, they're they're driving machines that have incredible downforce, and they've got to do everything they can to get everything they can out of those cars. 
So, of course, they're going to take any contact patch that's possible for them. So, I, like I, like you said, I don't I don't agree with them changing that kind of during the weekend. And and it was it was kind of different in and out of testing whether they were going to let it go or not. And it was the same in, in qualifying. And then, like you said, for the first part of the race, it was okay. And then when Max did it, it wasn't. So, I don't know if it needs to be a rule where hey, this is this is track limits, but not when you're passing. Like I I, I don't know that. Yeah, this is it's confusing to me because I think that if they had a more concrete rule, then Verstappen probably wouldn't have attempted that pass if he knew he wasn't able to do that. You know, there's it's too it's too vague to where you can't have drivers going for the win and not knowing what they are and aren't allowed to do because that just makes it harder to race somebody if you don't yeah, even know just... what you're doing. Yeah, and that and I don't put distrust in the stewards going forward, not only from from the drivers and 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 their teams, but you know us as fans, because it's like, oh well, my favorite driver is in in third, trying to get to the second step of the podium right now, uh, and he just ran wide in turn whatever at track whatever, and is he going to get a penalty for that because he only had one tire on the track? Well, no, you know. I mean, Max was clearly off the track, but the teeter-tottering, I find it a little bit unacceptable. Yeah, I definitely don't agree with the, the vague ruling because you can't – you have to have the rules in a way that if there's two drivers going for the win, they have to know what the rules are. They can't – you can't race somebody for a win if you don't even know what you're allowed to do. Yeah, and speaking of rules, uh, you have to know what they are and what they mean. Uh Something happened Sunday, and that was that we had a safety car for Sergio Perez, who had engine issues, and they restarted the race by doing an extra formation lap and took a lap off the race. That's not a rule I knew existed. Did you know about that by any chance? What, the rule about the laps counting for safety car? Uh, no, the that the lap... Uh, you know, they, they started the race, and then Checo had yeah. his problem... And he had to start from pit lane, but the the whole uh, lap, like, yeah, yeah, they shortened it. A I lap. didn't know oh. that at all because I know that people have had issues in the formation lap before, but I didn't know that if they had to do an extra formation lap, that they took a lap off the race. And that's sort of a first for me. I know that formation lap issues are. I'm no stranger to that because I know the last time Grosjean crashed on a formation lap a few years ago and. That was a wet race, so obviously it wasn't a standing start and all that kind of stuff, but this is the first time I've seen Yeah, and I can't wait for the midfield battle now that we know that they're pretty strong contenders and McLaren up there battling in the top five with Lando Norris. I mean, it's it's going to be fun really from Ferrari on back this year, I feel, so I can't wait to watch. Um, but, of course, we go from a really great debut to a... Uh, a world record debut, uh, not a good record, but Mazepin, he uh, has the shortest Formula 1 debut ever, and he finishes his debut after just two turns. I mean, what is this guy, what is this guy doing on, on the first lap of the race, just spins it out and just totals this car? I, I yeah, don't get it. I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to be too harsh, obviously, it's not a good car, but then again, he had a lot of problems this weekend. He had what that was at least his fourth spin of the weekend, I would say. Yeah, he, and then he's running quite got mad at him for 
overtaking other cars on his way to set a qualifying lap, which is not which is like a gentleman's agreement not to do and makes it a couple corners in the race. It's like that's not a good start, to say the least. Well, I, mean, I just hope... obviously his teammate spun out, but at least his teammate made it more than one lap before it happened. Yeah, I just hope he makes uh he brings a lot more money than he's gonna cost him. Um I was hoping there was gonna be some more stability, I guess, in the Haas stable this year, knowing that Mick Schumacher was there. Uh, but honestly, I don't know if if this decision uh, with keeping Mazepin is going to work out for them in the long run because obviously he and his family brings money, but I don't know if it's going to be enough because I know Haas has been struggling. They might not be in the sport for too much longer. If Yeah, my theory is that the Mazepin family is going to buy the team if they're not able to find any more money, just because if you look at the net worth of Lawrence Stroll, he's, I think, two or three billion, and Madison's dad is worth twice that. Yeah. So they, they're they a serious suitor to buy an F1 team in the upcoming years, and that's my worry is that Haas really needs money or else they're going to be completely sold out in a few years. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm not really a big fan of Gene Haas myself, but having an American F1 team was something that I looked forward to when they showed up on the scene. And I really wish we could have gotten an American driver, uh, maybe someone like an Alexander Rossi or somebody over there. Uh, but that never really panned out. So to see it after the Rich Energy saga and all that stuff happening, to see it close down wouldn't be a surprise to me. And a buyout from another rich racing dad. And not like it would be the first time, just like you said, with Stroll and the uh, Aston Martin racing. But I guess... Moving on from Formula 1, we had a dirt race in NASCAR for the first time in 51 years, and I'd like to bring my dad, Chad Harrington, in for conversation about this, because he's more of a dirt expert than I am, uh, if you could even call me that. So I want to welcome him to the show now. What's going on, Chad? Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Right. More than you actually know, uh, I'm honored to be actually on here be one of the first guests so um i was i was definitely intrigued by the dirt racing and everything that happened for the last week and a half at bristol actually because it was good racing and everything but you know i'm kind of excited to see some of the others that are still left to come on bristol in the next few weeks as well yeah and uh, i think we were a little bit kind of underwhelmed by the idea kind of coming in here a little bit negative, but it turned out to be a positive. But before we get into the race, um, why don't you kind of introduce yourself and kind of tell everybody why I kind of introduced you as a dirt expert. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll get, we'll get more into your life uh, in racing later on in the show, but go ahead and introduce yourself for, for everyone listening. Uh, Chad Harrington. I do a lot of graphic design work. I am a flagman slash race director all all across the South and have done so for the last 20 plus years. So, and most of it has been on dirt except for a few little stints here and there for asphalt um, at Atlanta Motor Speedway that I get to help with as well. Um, so I've seen my fair share of dirt and I've been going to dirt races in the local area since 1973. And that would be 40, basically 48 out of my 49, almost 49 years on the planet. So 
and a dirt specialist and knowing how different tracks work and everything is is always fun to to see. But you learn a lot every time you go to a dirt track just because everywhere is completely different. It's not the same no matter where you go, no matter what somebody would say, oh, it's always this, it's always that. It's definitely not. Um, being as a fan, as an employee to the track, to being a flagman, you, know, you get to get to see things at these places a little bit differently and feel honored that I've been able to do so over the last 20 years. But for the most part, that's pretty much what I got for you right there, Alex. All right. Yeah. Like I said, we'll get into more uh, about you later in the show. So let's talk about Bristol. Uh, something that you and I, Nathan, have been yearning for pretty much since we left Daytona, came back this weekend, and that was practice. And I don't know how much of it you watched, but I watched all four sessions, and I was lapping up every bit of it. Yeah, I watched one of the truck sessions and two of the cup sessions, and I enjoyed it a lot. Actually, I took time out of the day just to watch those, and because I haven't seen practice in so many years, and it almost, it, I guess it's just me growing up, but I almost felt nostalgic because I'm I'm used to watching practice every Friday night and qualifying every Friday night, and now it's like I haven't had this in a year and a half, so it feels completely different watching it again. It's almost like sort of took me back in time, maybe. Yeah, I was I was at work just giddy, just getting ready to go. I was you know, rubbing my hands together real quick, shaking my knees. I was just ready to get home. I got home and truck practice was already on. I only missed about 30 minutes of it. And I felt like a kid coming off the school bus again. I was so happy. And hearing Mike Joy, Jeff Gordon, and Clint just joking in the booth along with the truck crew. It was, it was something that, you know, you don't know that you need until it's gone. And so I guess the COVID procedures since we haven't had practice at most of the races has really shown me how much I appreciated being on a Friday or or Saturday morning watching a practice session on TV because of course you know going to a racetrack and watching it live is even better but having something to watch when you get off of work on Friday was was really nice and Chad, I know you are one of the lucky ones that work for home from home, so uh, I'm guessing that you watched all four sessions as well. Yeah, I got to watch all four sessions. It was kind of ironically funny that you actually watch them practice on dirt, knowing that the surface was not going to be nowhere near close to what it would be during the race and everything. And it, w it was kind of neat to see, but it was kind of at the same time to actually see it the first time in over a year it's almost like you go back and it was just like you said you jump off the bus and you'd come home and you'd get to see qualifying or one practice session that afternoon and you'd get so upset that it was rained out because it wasn't raining at your house you know um yeah but here it is we got to watch practice and i was disappointed nothing much more happened than what did during practice because I kind of figured we'd have all sorts of different cups and bumps and things off the wall and other stuff like that but it was pretty clean I was impressed with the way that they turned out and had to handle themselves and some that you didn't know had speed on dirt it was really cool to see it it opened your eyes to a bunch of sleepers for 
maybe those that do DraftKings and other stuff like that. It was like, hmm, team's got it going on. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting. You saw what you thought you wouldn't see. Uh, like you said, everybody was pretty tame. We didn't have too many spins or wrecks in cup practices. We saw more of that in the trucks, which I thought was ironic because those are the guys that have been running on dirt, whether they've been in the truck series for a few years or they've been running ARCA at the Doking Fairgrounds. Um I don't know. It was kind of funny to see more action in the truck practices than the cup practices since the cup guys, you've got guys out there that have never turned laps in in, in, in dirt, you know, like Martin Trex Jr., like Daniel Suarez, and amongst others. So it was really cool to see. Uh, another thing he hit on was the track was constantly changing and it was not going to be like what it was going to be Saturday and Sunday. That, that track slicked off really fast on Friday and that got me worried for the weekend. Uh, and then we see that picture from Jamie Little's Twitter where it looked like the Grand Canyon uh, oh, yes. almost. So, I don't know. I, I was scared for the weekend after that, but it, it, it turned out all right. Well, the most thing you got to think about is how many pounds are these cars compared to what you're used to seeing on dirt? You just You just knew something different was going to happen. You know, the first time they ran the trucks at Eldora, everybody was worried about ruts, the big ruts. And it didn't really happen because Tony really did seal that place up pretty well. And it had it, you know, they do so much racing up there. The track was conditioned. Well, that's what I think they did. Everybody that raced there the last week, week and a half before this, seasoned that track almost like it had four months of Saturday night racing on it. If they would not have done that, we would have had the biggest cluster bomb from hell that you'd have ever seen if by just throwing NASCAR and dirt at one time. Yeah, and something that uh, I guess Nathan and I talked about previously was the fact that this wasn't a natural dirt track, as as you would say. So they just throw in dirt on top of Bristol. I know uh, when, when Colton Cranmore was on, the three of us talked about it, and that we were we were kind of like, hey, you know, does the Bristol crew going to know what, what, what the hell they're doing? And um, I guess I know we saw some ruts and stuff like that form on Sunday's race, but it was interesting to see the learning process even during the course of the weekend with NASCAR. I think that comes. I think that came about with what happened back in 2000 and 2001 when the World of Outlaws and the Have a Tampa series was there running, and they found out what they could and could not do because they only had two layers of dirt, and it was sawdust and clay at that point in time. And and granted, it put on a good show, put on a good good deal of racing, but again, it's still dusty. Um, this time they put down multi layers including that base layer from the 2000-2001, what hadn't washed away or they used for different building purposes and whatnot. And then they added some lime into some bits and pieces of it, and they stacked different types of clay onto it so that when they tilled parts of it up and put water back to it, it retained a lot of the water and the moisture in there, which it would not have done if they used the same type of application that they did in 2000 and 2001 just between the clay and the sawdust 
because you got that natural hard surface that's going to suck that water straight out of everything otherwise. And one thing that nobody knows is they put a actual like a felt or almost some sort of fabric between the concrete and that layer of sawdust to help actually hold it so that the concrete steel wouldn't pull nowhere near as much of that moisture out. Now, I believe that really did help from everything that they had done and learned 20 years ago. Now, these guys going all over the place the last couple of years trying to figure out what they needed to do to make sure that they put on a good show. Yeah, and then uh, we saw practice. Everybody was excited. And then, Nathan, I'm sure uh, you can attest to this. We, we get to Saturday, and everything's happening we're ready for the heat races but the weather like always is just saying no so for me uh i was i was out and about and i came home and was ready for all the heat races and stuff so i was watching on the recording and i just saw that one lap of the one heat that they started and then i figured out that they weren't going racing on saturday so i was disappointed um how, how disappointed were you Saturday? Because I know you being a college student, you, you kind of got to set aside time to, to watch these events because you got studying and stuff going on. Oh, definitely. I was really disappointed on Saturday because I get back from the gym and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to watch heat races and do nothing for the rest of the weekend. And then I'm thinking, oh, there we go again. We got rain. This is going to get pushed the next day. And it's probably going to rain Sunday. They're going to push back to Monday. And it's just, I, I was. I've seen people joking about that in the moment they announced Bristol Derby. They're like, oh, it's going to rain. And sure enough, it did. So I'm not really surprised at this point. Yeah, well, something I saw on Twitter was it seems that um, Bristol is actually in a temperate rainforest. At least that's what a bunch of Twitter experts uh, and armchair racers told me. So I'm just going to believe them because it rains so damn much up there. Um a lot of people, including you and I, were talking about moving this date to June with a swap with this weekend at Sonoma. A lot of people were arguing on Twitter about that as well, that it rains just as much in June. But I, I want to kind of get away from the dirt just a little bit to say, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think it'd be a pretty good idea. I would love a date swap for Bristol just because I think it might it might still rain in June, but it's a better date, I believe, in March, just because of warmer weather at that point in the year. And I'd frankly like say Sonoma on the West Coast swing would be good because it's got green grass. There's no, it's a road course too. You don't have to worry about rain because you can race in the rain. So right, I really see more points. Yeah, a lot of people were saying it's it's hot as balls out there in the summer, and it's really hard to walk around and stuff because it's so hot and there's not really much of shade in Sonoma so it, it seems like a win-win for everyone I know Absolutely. that you could possibly get more rain but I know my dad um is probably more of an expert just because of his age about this they used to run Riverside either right before or right after the Daytona 500 depending on which years you look at um it's not unfeasible that they go straight from Daytona to a road course I mean we did it this year we just stayed in Daytona yeah, I mean, it was always the first race of the season, and they didn't mandate the rules until you got to Daytona. You could still use your car from last November 
because Riverside was also the last race of the season, meaning that you could use it in November, use it again in January the following year, and then you started with that next year's rules at Daytona. Me, I don't know why they wouldn't have already put that out there um, unless it's a deal where all of them have got oval cars and cut down on trips, knowing that they weren't doing qualifying, they could have Vegas car and the Phoenix car already with them as two cars. And if they needed to, they still could have went after Phoenix at that point and went to Sonoma for that matter, you know, and we could have moved Bristol all the way down to late April, early May date. And that would even give Atlanta a little bit, a little bit more time to warm up by pushing it down the calendar a week as well. Why they don't do it, not sure, but it would be good to have Sonoma that far up in the schedule just because of the climate out there. It's almost perfect time of the year for it, racing right there. Or you'd have to put it at the end of the year in October and November. You'd see the same thing. Well, the, the good thing about it then is also it's green, which aesthetically is more pleasing. Um, but I think the – the teams, they lose a lot of money during that West Coast swing because they're having to go back and forth um, with that transfer hauler. But also, they they initially did the West Coast swing to save some money. So I don't know where the balance is out there, but you got to think, we're not doing practice and qualifying, so you don't have to bring backup cars. Well, even when we were bringing backup cars, they were sending one hauler cross-country with, with cars to swap with the regular haulers, um, and they went race from race from race. So... It could be something where we go from Daytona to Sonoma and then do our Phoenix-Vegas Auto Club swing and and just tack it on and get get it over with and then come back west at the end of the season just because of the way that, you know, we've got better weather out there, so we know it's not going to be cold and rainy like it is over here in the southeast. Um, I, I think it's something that they should look into, and if they were to do that, it would still be hot as balls in Bristol. So let's have two Saturday night races since one of them's going to be dirt anyways. Yeah, and I do believe that would be good for dirt. It on a Saturday night instead of Sunday in the afternoon. Yeah, and uh, I don't know why they didn't do it this year. Uh, we saw during uh, the Cup race, uh, which we'll get into in more detail later. Uh, the dust was a problem because the sun was hitting all those particles and you couldn't see anything. Uh, like I said, we'll get onto it later. It wasn't dusty on Saturday, though. I did want to make a mention. Um, what do you guys think of the mud pit on Saturday that was that one lap of racing that we saw with heat race number one? Um, you had mud all over the tear-offs. You had cars overheating, and they'd only really done one or two laps at speed. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of it, but um, there wasn't much to could have done at that point. Um, I saw that one lap, and I was thinking that's probably it for the rest of the day, just seeing that one lap based on how much mud there was kind of slung around. And uh, It's definitely disappointing, though, from my standpoint, because I was looking forward to a whole night of heat racing. Oh yeah, me too. I was, I was honestly at that point, I was, I was laughing because I thought, I thought it was hilarious, um, myself. But also, uh, it did lead to us not having heat races, which I was really, uh, sad about because I wanted to see that just because you know we had some people that, that were gonna be forced to go home, um, when we did the heat races. Of course, we did have a larger field on, on Monday when we eventually 
ran the race than we would have if we ran heat races because of NASCAR's policy. But, you know, Stuart Friesen's wife was one of the people that I wanted to see race against uh, the the cup in truck regulars to see if she could get herself into that show. We didn't get that chance. Um, I also wanted to see just how NASCAR's passing points went because um, I have a really big hate, I guess, hate relationship with those. Well, I can, I can, I can really say that he hates those Nate, but y'all can, (laughs) you can make fun of him first. It's just hilarious. I mean, I don't blame him. I definitely would have been equally confused with that, with the passing points, because I've never seen how those play out before. It would have been my first time seeing that rule in action. Like I understand the, understand the basics of it. I've just never seen it. So I don't, I, I don't know enough to judge. So I'm not going to make fun of him just yet. The the true basis on those, if they're done properly, done correctly, um, you would actually have to run two sets of heats and invert the field. Um, the second set of heats for them to actually work its magic. You, I mean, just because you run one night of heats or one set, it's not really going to help you if you start up front one night and you start in the middle of the pack the next night or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but there's there's events around for dirt late models and such that um, they do use passing points, and they run two sets of heat races, and they invert one set of heat rate that exact same set of heat races, so that you are you've given the given yourself the multiple opportunities. So if you start on the pole for one, you can only gain so much by winning that race. Granted, it's like the maximum of say twenty points for the for the win from first. If you was to win that from tenth, it's possible you could have gotten forty points because of that. And to have the opportunity to start front and back wherever it is, the better off you are. It doesn't perceive the fact that the way that NASCAR's point system would have worked really wouldn't have made a hill of beans unless you started taking points away from somebody or losing spots instead of passing um well the way that they were going to do it was basically if you started and finished in the same spot or lower you didn't get any points only if you pass people which is is to mm-hmm. me as far as i know not how passing points have ever worked and i right there's no detriment that's the problem yes and that is one of the that I was getting at of why you needed a two sets of heats, which would have been even cooler, was the fact that and I know they wanted to run 15 laps, but you could have easily done the same thing by putting two sets of 10 lap heats in and giving them a chance to really earn some points. Go ahead. The reason I say it's hilarious is because I introduced Alex to the passing points a while ago, and he is know that he gets frustrated from time to time when people just mention passing points but he also introduced passing points to his own fantasy league at one point in time which was quite ironic yeah and uh we can we can kind of get into the the passing points debacle later uh we'll talk about your other um extracurricular activities with racing i guess uh later on in 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 the show uh, but I think the only way that I would 
I would be able to fix what NASCAR was doing after hearing you say that. It would have been cool. Maybe instead of seeing a second practice session, we saw a time trial session where we had qualifying. Uh, and they could they could have put me or you up up there so that we could have ran it so that it would be really fast. Because when me and my dad worked together, especially during qualifying, it works really well. Because we can get two or three cars on the track at the same time and click them off, you know, very quickly. And, and, and then they could have done uh the first set of heats based on qualifying and then just inverted the heats based on qualifying like you said now that would have that would have put more car track time and would have made the fans there happy would have made us happier too we finally got to racing though on monday so after the flood plane that was the campgrounds right outside of the racetrack drained and the sun was out the track was prepped beautifully they worked overnight the truck race went off uh, basically without a beat. Um, um, Martin Truex Jr. has one start prior to the um, truck race on dirt, and it was a charity event, so you wouldn't even call that an official start. So his first dirt start is in the truck series, in that 51 machine, and he blazed the field. Um, I mean, do you guys think that was because of mtj's talent or do you think it was because he was driving a kbm truck oh man well i think first of all i've got to point out his talent obviously it's it's a lot better than i would have expected because i remember when Pern retired people were saying you know this is this is the end of martin Truex, and he's never going to be the same again and you know sure enough he's been one of the more consistent drivers in top last year this year, he's probably one of the five strongest drivers in the series so far. And then Most definitely. he goes out and wins a t- truck race on dirt that he's never been on. It's like, you're almost starting to believe it's like the guy's a lot better than what people give him credit for. And people have stated that his driving style suit dirt, that he never even knew that. It's just the way that he likes to drive in general. He's better at using his feet than people think and so I don't really think anyone expected it. It sort of just came out of nowhere. But now I'm sort of thinking he could pretty much win anywhere any week. So I guess I am surprised, but maybe I shouldn't have been in hindsight. Yeah, he seems to have come on pretty strong in the last couple of years. I know, of course, we see him in the championship years um, where where he's – coming on in the 78 strong at short tracks and stuff. And, you know, that's something that we never saw Martin Truex Jr. as being is someone who's got the throttle control, like you said. And I don't know if it's just because he's a late bloomer or that Cole Pern unlocked something th- thing yeah, in him. He knows what he's doing now, I think. There's a lot of Yeah. I think that it's, it's like, sort of like his talent's always been there, but now that – now that you've got a car that he can do whatever he wants with, like there's no, there's nothing really stopping him anymore. Let, let let me get you two guys to think a little bit more and a little bit further down the line of all of the asphalt tracks you run and the concrete tracks. Which ones are slippery? Which ones do you have to have so much of an egg between your foot and that throttle pedal? I mean, you look at Martinsville, you look at Richmond, and you you just think, wow, you know, you've got to be on it. You've got to have your feet working at a at a slower pace, but yet you've got to be precise. 
And I have actually heard that Richmond's about as slick of a racetrack as you can. Of course, you know, they put a sealer down on that every so often. That sealer doesn't really go away. It's still kind of slippery. And to me, looking at that slick and then the way that that thing dusted off and started taking rubber, getting slick, which drivers did we see up front at that at that race? We saw all the guys that run well, a slick situation, not just dirt, but a slick track situation. Ones that run good at Atlanta because you don't have any grip and you have to feather the throttle, they were up front. Ones at Richmond, they were up front. Ones who get around Martinsville and learn how to float a corner, they were up front. Bristol, on the dirt. Yeah, exactly. And I think Truex, especially when you mentioned Richmond, he's been probably the car to beat ever since 2016 or 17 there. He's led yeah. 100 laps in every single Richmond race or more. So it's just, I never really correlated the two, but now that you mentioned it, it's starting to make sense. Yeah, and I think that's something that, you know, we've all been kind of yearning for is that throttle control that we've kind of been missing since we went to the 750 and, 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 550 packages with cup i mean off throttle has been not a thing since they went to the tapered spacer and and this is a track that even though they're not running 900 horsepower the fact that they've got the 750 package on it the fact that the tires are wearing out so much they they had those guys show up and you know since we're kind of moving our way into the cup race um with with this conversation um we saw nascar and goodyear kind of come to an agreement that these tires are kind of slicks after 50 or so laps so they they chopped up the race into just 50 lap segments now I'm someone who doesn't like stage cautions, but I think that choice was one of the better that they made this weekend. And I loved how you could go down pit road and not lose your spot because it didn't seem like there was there was too much going on, but the racing purely spoke for itself. Yeah, I was really excited for that race. And it ended up being good. I'm glad that it's a driver track, like you said, because a lot of the drivers that are smooth with their feet ended up being up front and... It's something that we don't get to see as much nowadays, and I'm glad that we got to see it. So any track or condition that suits that, I'm looking forward to. Oh, I, I can honestly say that when they split it up into all 50-lap segments, it kind of reminded me, hey, you know something? If this was the only race today, I just got to watch five 50-lap local late model features. And the starting was always different. It was nice that they had their time to work on the cars before they went back. You know, down on some of the travel costs for the teams because those fast guys with the guns didn't need to be there to change tires. Tires themselves, you got to remember, they're, they're no different than the dirt tires that they use for super late models, too. The bi-supply tires that give a lot on the sidewall, and those are the same exact tire constructions that the first fast track crate late model series actually used way back when they started. They signed a deal with Goodyear and brought those tires out. That's how come Goodyear has that technology. 
those tires were really designed for 50 lap features. So to me, five features in one race, I was excited. Yeah, and um, it kind of gave that 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 just short track feel. Period. Uh, I went to my first asphalt late model race earlier this year at the Alabama 200. Uh, they didn't have a halftime per se, but they had controlled cautions, um, where if a caution fell between lap like 75 and 125, um, it would be considered their controlled caution, and they had everybody come down. They could change tires and all that, and they would come back out in the same spot. Uh, you look at uh, older super late model races, um, I can remember watching with old videos of like the World 100 and stuff. They they would run 50 laps. Someone would get a payout for, for winning that 50th lap segment. Uh, and then they would have a, a true halftime where the, the, the guys that came along with the drivers could change the tires, refuel the cars and all that. And they had, they had the drivers come out and they would, they would, you know, do interviews and stuff. And it would be, you know, like a true halftime, like a football game or something. And they get back in the cars and go. So it, it was almost kind of like really old school, which I didn't know I wanted until I saw it. And, you know, trying to bash this thing uh, until it happened, because I just knew it was going to be terrible. Uh, it was kind of a pleasant surprise for me um, after all things are said and done. But yeah, I mean, the race was really good. Um, it was it was always changing conditions, which is something you always see on dirt. I thought once it slipped off, it was kind of going to be the same, but but still different drivers kind of came forward and, and, and went back. But out of nowhere, Daniel Suarez, who's... In his mid-race interview, says, "I don't know what I'm doing," is is leading a good chunk of the race. Uh, what did you guys think about that? Because he he had never been on a on a dirt track until they went practicing on Friday. Well, technically, he he actually got to go practice on Tuesday because I was actually asked on Monday if I would come flag for him. As Dale McDowell, super late model driver, and he, you know, he runs that driving school. And Trevor Bain met him at Smoky Mountain to get him in a car to get him laps on dirt just for that. I think Dale McDowell actually helped him a lot with uh, driving techniques. And being that it happened on Tuesday and then he got in the car on Friday, it was fresh in his mind and it was almost the same play. So I think that right there really, really, really put Daniel Flores on the map for that that race yesterday. Well, that that's something that I I don't I don't think a lot of people knew. So that's interesting insider information there. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's been doing fairly well in the track house car. Something that uh, I don't think any of us were expecting, um, even despite the RCR backing that they have. Uh, He's a wheel man, and I know you and I, uh, going to races at Talladega, uh, have seen him do some stuff on the super speedways, but he's a bit of a short track guy, too. Um, Nathan, were you surprised by he in particular coming up there, or did you see anything that was surprising to you, uh, as far as guys who were up front? Yeah, I think Suarez was definitely the biggest standout for me, just because I never pictured him as a dirt driver of any kind. 
Um, he's had good runs this year for a smaller team, but then for him to run top five for a majority of the back half of the race and then take the lead on merit for a good chunk of that race. And I was thinking, what in the world is happening? I'd never went into the race expecting that at all. But now I'm starting to think that whatever he's doing is going to be more common just because I think that he and his team have been really good over the last few weeks, but that had to have been a career race for Suarez just because of the fact that he was doing that in a mid-pack car. Oh, yeah, and I don't know if you guys listened to his his post-race interview, but he said, it's good to be back. And yeah, those definitely. words hit me really hard because I've always been a supporter of Daniel Suarez since he came in to the Xfinity Series. His few truck starts that, that we got to see, I've just been, you know, bummed out year after year him bouncing around the teams because he was rushed up to cup uh he got swapped over to the 41 and then you know because cup champion was coming over and then uh he got kicked out of the 41 before he really had a good place to you know get strides in um even after he almost won a kentucky race prior to cole custer uh with the 2020 win um but now he's found a home and he's found a program that's being built around him. And, and those words that he said, it's finally, or it's good to be back. I mean, that hit home for me because he's going to be competing. Um, maybe not for wins this year, but you can see that once that crew gets under that, that driver, they're going to be a threat. Um, much like, I guess a, a SHR car right now would be a threat to get a win, but not really someone that you would think would be winning like an Eric Almirola or a, or a Cole Custer, you know, or even Chase Briscoe slash Clint Boyer the last couple of years. So I can't wait to see how that team develops because I think it's going to bring in a lot of, I guess, new mobility to the sport from popular media and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm impressed with Trackhouse especially, and I would not be surprised at all if they're a regular top 15 contender most weeks because I remember Homestead in particular, he was competing for a top 10. So the fact that they're doing this so early makes me think they're only going to go up from here on out. Yeah, absolutely. And another uh, another driver that we saw up front um, early but continues to have bad luck, that was Bubba Wallace. I don't think anyone didn't expect that to happen. Of course, he's he's got a Eldora Dirt Derby uh, win, um, so that was that was kind of in the making as soon as we saw that the Bristol Dirt Race was going to happen. I'm sure he circled that on his his calendar. Uh, he faded away with more bad luck, um, and then another guy that we saw come up near the end of the race, kind of in the same form, was Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and he actually finished second. So. A lot of people don't really think of him as a dirt racer because I guess he's just not publicized like uh, Kyle Larson or like a Christopher Bell. But he he's a pretty damn good dirt racer himself. He owns a, a World of Outlaws uh, sprint car team. So I was definitely expecting him to do good. And, and, and they really cranked on that car all race long to finally get him to where he could compete uh, for the win if, if they had a little bit of extra time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um I figure Stenhouse would do all right just because he's a, a dirt background driver. But <clears throat> I think that, yeah, if there was maybe one more restart, he probably could have won that race. He just didn't have time. 
I would definitely agree with you on that being in-house. And even Ryan Newman was just completely overlooked as being possible favorites to win this race. I mean, where did Ryan Newman start? He started the same place Jeff Gordon did in the sprints all the way around the Midwest and everything, you know? It's kind of ironic that you have all of these dirt guys coming back to the front. Some of these folks, like I'll say, you wouldn't think about being there. Suarez, Bubba Wallace, other people that were ever noted to be there as dirt drivers. Well, you know something? A lot of times, it's all about the, the way that they were brought up racing. If they were brought up to race smooth, even if they race mostly on asphalt, they can probably still get around a dirt track. Case in point, you can also go with the winner of the race. He was taught to drive smooth around a lot of places. We have ever figured that he run his first dirt race in Volusia this past February? Oh, absolutely not. And I think there's a lot that it's almost like you say, Talladega and Daytona. Stricter plates means... If you're in the field, you have a shot to win. Maybe not so much at Bristol. I guarantee you there's at least 26 to 28 people that felt they really had a shot to win out of that 40. Bristol started and that green flag flew. Not just 10 or 12, 28 to 30 of them had a perfectly great chance to win that race. Well, I mean, I think we'll probably see that even later on in, in the in the schedule with, you know, Circuit of the Americas and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a little bit less than that because, you know, not everybody's been brought up on road courses, but it was an unknown, and I think that's always going to be something that that lends its hand to smaller teams or their drivers show, showcasing talent uh, that they don't normally have the ability to show because – when we go to a two-mile or a mile-and-a-half track, it's it's more about the car than it is the driver, especially nowadays with our current package. Um, but all in all, the race itself was better than I expected. NASCAR has one under their belt, and after they say um, that it's 22 and possibly beyond, um, that we're going to have the dirt race at Bristol um, for the near future, uh... I hope that they bring some different stuff back um, to kind of improve the racing. We talked about the five segments. Um, personally, I would have liked to have seen them give stage points away just to see if we could have given uh, a little oomph to the to the top ten battles in those stages. But all in all, we really didn't need it. Uh, but something that happened during during the middle of the race. Um, you hear over the the radio, and it's kfb and excuse my french but he says this is a fucking disaster uh he was saying this because you couldn't see anybody and he got he got caught up in that wreck um that basically tore both of his front fenders off because i mean you couldn't see anything the dust was way too much the the sun was reflect refracting on all the dust particles and when you see the on onboard cameras it's just uh, a hazy white whitish red and you can't see anything in front of you and due to that nascar put them single file and for me i didn't like that at all because it seemed like the intensity of the race went down a lot 
after they did that. Is that what you saw from your perspective, Nathan? Yeah, I definitely saw a little bit of that. Um, I don't blame Kyle Busch for being upset because I do believe that what caused that in the dust is that everyone checked up and I believe he ran into the back of somebody that kicked the whole thing off. So I'd be pretty upset too if I wrecked and I couldn't see. Yeah, I mean, I mean, even at that point, spotters probably are having a terrible time seeing because sometimes if if it's dirty and and even being right over the right over the track on the flag stand, if it's if it's dusty, you know, I, I'm having the default to 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 somebody else when I'm saying, you know, I can't see, you know, the back stretcher turn three, turn three and turn two because it's just covered in dust. Um, so I could imagine that being way up there where all the dust is still flying that's been out in the air for 20 or 30 laps that those spotters were having a hell of a time trying to spot. Yeah, I wonder how much they could even play a role at that point. I would think that they probably couldn't play much of a role except for what they could see that was in the shade because all of the camera angles that they were showing during the broadcast, it was set a certain way. You would get to it and it would be so dusty you couldn't follow the cars and then they'd go back to the ground level shots where the cameras were there so that you could see the cars on the broadcast meaning you know the the cameras being maybe 15 to 20 foot up in the air versus the ones that are three four stories over the over the thing in different spots no different than to me what you used to go down the old back straightaway at Atlanta Motor Speedway and even with those bad cameras back then you come off turn two and you just dive off into turn three and you couldn't see you was hoping you was turning in the right spot I mean that was the same thing that most of those guys were doing with that sun coming through that one little opening over there if, if anybody's smart they'll hang some banners there next year that it covers up most of the sunlight if they have that same issue and have to run it due to weather the day or the day before previous that pushes stuff back that it cuts out some of that sunlight so that you can see yeah i hadn't even thought about something as simple as that i mean nascar they they just did a quick fix by going to single file and uh we had discussed this before we started the recording but I didn't like that. Like I just said, I felt like it uh, it made the racing a little bit more boring. And I wanted to I wanted to kind of discuss with you, Chad, because you've been working at racetracks for quite some time. You were working on the flag stand before double file restarts were really a thing, and then they did went to the Dixie double file, and then they went to the choose cone, and it's kind of been a natural progression. Um, what did you think when they went back to single file? Uh, I thought it was a step in the wrong direction, and then possibly also. Do you think we could have had a choose cone since we were at a short track? Well, my first take was when I saw them and I heard them say that they were going single file, I just threw my hands up in the air and said, oh, hell. So there went the show. And then I'm sitting there thinking, as a race director, well, would I do this this way or would I do it a different way? Well, everybody that's below me came and paid a ticket for their seat. I need to put on a show. So where we are, where I race, most times it's double file all the way until the last restart. It does not matter. 
for the main class, they're getting all of their double file restarts until that checkered flag falls because that's what the fans pay to see. Right. That's what we're watching it for on TV. Now, in a certain situation, if that track would have locked down and it would have had such a rubber grip at the bottom and we know that double file wouldn't work, and yes, maybe due to track conditions being crumbling tracks and we had already had five of them tear down a wall or something, yeah, we need to go single file at that point. But not just because some of, some of them said they couldn't see, but just for a moment or two, I don't think the safety was there as NASCAR was seeing the cars as much as they couldn't see the cars from the tower. And if that was their call, I can understand that as well. I hated to see it happen, though. Well, the thing that got me is later on in the race, they fixed the issue, right? If they would have just laid water down during all of those red flag segments and then have the Packer cars come out there just a little bit, we wouldn't have had dust most of the night uh, because they were only doing 50-lap segments. It's no different than during the feature. Um, well, we have track prep. Or, you know, you get guys to come out during hot laps and say, hey, you guys need to run those marbles in up top so that uh, you guys have a clean racetrack to, to get set up or, or whatever, you know. Even before features, we do that sometimes. Um, so they had the fix. But, I mean... As, as far as the double file restarts anyways, I was puzzled going into there um, because you see the choose cone everywhere except for super speedways and road courses. Now, Nathan and I have already discussed the fact that they should have them on road courses, um, but we understand why they don't on, on super speedways. I don't understand why they didn't have it on the dirt race here at Bristol and... You've used the choose cone before. Have you ever used it on dirt? Because I know you have with your Legends cars at Atlanta. Um, actually, we we would have. I don't know that you would say the choose cone on dirt as much as we use the flag stand. You know, at that point, you your spot just like we do at Atlanta Motor Speedway now for them to choose when they chose. But there was a restart cone one point in time to where we had a rope tied to it. Granted, if NASCAR didn't think that it was safe, but it, you've got these guys wanting to go outside, wanting to go inside instead of just setting the field left to right, left to right, left to right, which I don't think is fair to some that were bottom feeders, mm -hmm. the ones that got shoved on the outside. And I don't think it's fair to the ones that are in the bottom feed now that we're actually making gains in the middle to the high side you know what i'm saying it's, yeah mm -hmm. should have they should have you know you you put a cone out there they could still do it yeah you can't paint that orange triangle and that, that box on the track at dirt because it's going to get eat away by the tire spin but you put a cone with a with a cord on it and as soon as everybody goes across that around it whichever side they want to choose you just reel that joker in and go green off a of four no big deal i mean it's still available they still could have done it i believe so and i really think that they should be able to do it at talladega and daytona even though they don't because well, if you're gonna you know i mean what happens if it doesn't matter where i come out on the pit stop 
I don't want to be behind that guy or to the inside of that guy, I want to be behind my teammate on the outside, and then my other teammates sitting third, and we all choose to line up on the on the outside. That gives the guy for fourth. He can go to the inside. We've got a whole nother ball game for a race at that point. Go back to Talladega when Stuart Haas just whipped the field that day. And all four of them in the same spot all day long. If they had a choose cone at that point in time, too, that race would have been completely different. Well, I think that's the exact race that NASCAR doesn't want to happen again. And I think they think that it's going to be even more possible if you have that. Now, of course, you could say, well, uh, a Denny Hamlin would break up that Penske pack if they did that, or, or, you know, Kevin Harvick would break up the the Hendrick pack if they did that um, and he had the ability. But, you know, I I don't think NASCAR wants to get into any more controversy on a speedway that they already do with the double yellow line rule and all that. Uh, but <laughs> back to Bristol Dirt. Um, I had originally stated in the preview for this race that I thought this race took away a perfectly good short track date. Now... I'll let you guys kind of handle this because in the back of my mind, I still have that feeling where these cars were going relatively slow. And yeah, we saw a somewhat entertaining race, but we could have saw 500 laps of two-lane Bristol with the PJ1 on the inside that has been phenomenal the last few years. Yeah, I do agree with that from that standpoint. I like Bristol, and I think that you shouldn't take dates away from the track. But then again, I do think that dirt in theory is a decent idea i just think that the only detriment is that it took a date away from such a good track as is i I can i I can agree that 500 laps at bristol in the spring should not have been replaced by bristol on the dirt but Mm -hmm. at the same time he doesn't always equal racing as we see at mile and a half right it just proves the point that Sometimes speed doesn't have to play a factor to putting on a good race. And I saw a great race on Monday because I did see them two and three wide. We were bumping. We ran out of room. They hit. Kept going. And they did it again at the next corner. Still would have rather had more than 250 laps, but I think the teams, the drivers, and everybody else would have pulled their hair out. I don't know how you could do this race at Bristol, the clout that SMI has to pull an event like this off without moving it somewhere else. I think at some point you do need a place the size of Bristol to hold at least 75,000 people that you can put on a show like this to reward the drivers and the teams as well as yourself as a track owner, that it works for you financially to make it happen. Well, I mean, we're going to Knoxville later on this year with the trucks, and that is a relatively large facility. I don't know exactly how many fans that they can pack in there, but it's it's quite a lot for Speed Week or Sprint Car uh, for the Nationals. Excuse my uh, error there. Uh, the only difference there is it's flat, and Knoxville, Iowa is kind of relatively in the middle of nowhere. So I can see where you're coming from with the SMI stuff. Um, But you said, I don't know how we could do this 
to get more racing. I think that the heats would have subdued some of that, but also I would have liked to seen. Uh, you said something about a last chance qualifier, but how about a double feature? You know, we've got the heats on Saturday. Well, Saturday night, let's run, let's run a hundred lap feature for stage one, and then just have stage two and three on on Sunday and run two hundred fifty laps over there, hundred lap and a hundred fifty lap feature. Or you could do it like Pocono and have you a 200-lap race on one day and 300-lap race on the other day to get your 500 laps of racing in and have Xfinity on one day beforehand, in front of it beforehand on that, three or four hours in between to do track prep, you'd be good for each day. Hey, well, uh, I know you've got some ties with SMI, so maybe Marcos will listen to this and uh, they'll have it on the docket for 2022. Who knows? Um, but speaking of 2022, we will be going back to Bristol. And I had question marks about that because the next-gen car is going to have a lot of underbody uh, aero for mechanical grip and stuff like that. They'll have the diffuser, the new splitter, uh, the different side skirts and stuff. Are we going to run the next-gen car? Or are we going to run some Gen 6s um, is a question I had. And also... What are those next-gen cars going to look like if we take all of that underbody stuff out? Does it put on the same show that we saw this year because they're going to have wider profile tires, etc., etc., etc.? Are you guys looking forward to it next year being that we're going to be in a totally new format? Oh, this is a good question because I know that Hamlin in particular in the post-race press conference mentioned that he isn't sure how the next-gen cars are going to race on dirt because he thinks that they're not as durable as the Gen 6, which that's a major major question mark for next year to see whether or not the cars are going to be able to have the same uh, durability of the Gen 6 to be able to handle running over all the ruts and whatnot. Well, I know we're going to have in- independent rear suspension, so that should help with, with the bumps and everything, right? I would think. In theory, it should. Um, but you've also got to... Um, one other thing to think about here is, you know, you just don't drop down a cup car to an Xfinity team and they put an Xfinity body on it, right? Right. Um, used to, used to have where you could sell all of your stuff to an ARCA team because ARCA was pretty much the equivalent of the Midwest cheap version of NASCAR. You don't even have that anymore. So my thinking is that until they get a good fleet of these cars for the next-gen cars, they've still got, say, even five of these left. You know, to be quite honest, I see a bunch of folks being able to reuse, and they use the Gen 6 anytime that they do dirt until they destroy them all. Or, you know, I don't know any other way to for that to happen without killing all that progress they're making with the next-gen car, just to throw it on dirt, which seems to be that you should be able to just keep using the same thing you've used the year before. You've only done it once, and it'll keep some of the cost down for the teams because why they can actually go forth and get more next-gen cars for the rest of the season. And this would be like a throw a chassis away race, like the first two or three truck races were. Right. And uh, kind of what you said there, um, 
kind of leads into a different conversation about this race in particular. Um, Richard Petty said something about dirt racing not being professional. And while I understand his sentiment, I don't necessarily agree with the exact words, but I will agree with him that this is kind of going backwards for for NASCAR because we hadn't done it in 51 years. But what you said about the next-gen car is that you'd be losing a lot because you're not going to gain anything from running it by taking away most of those features that are supposed to help the asphalt tracks. Why would you put yourself in a box to do that is a question for me going forward with 2022 and beyond in quotation marks um, for, for this one event that could have and probably should have just been a one-off knowing that that next generation is coming. They're talking about bringing no windshields to NASCAR, and with the Richard Petty quote, we're, we're kind of going backwards. Well, they mentioned from Mike Joy that every cup car in the history of the cup series has had a windshield. Now, I'm not saying that I would have known that stat because it's very obscure, um, but come next year, if they take the windshields off, that's something that I'm now like, well, damn, is it really still a cup car? I mean, I never really thought of the windshield being what makes a cup car a cup car, but that is definitely a really interesting thing that I never knew up until he mentioned that. So I think it's just a matter of how much NASCAR wants to to adapt their cars for dirt. So it's really going to be interesting with how much the next-gen car is built for asphalt, and particularly road courses. Yeah, and, and with that, we saw some interesting facts that they're trying to look at racing a road street course in Chicago. So, I mean, we're, we're, we know we're heading towards a road and short track future of NASCAR. We're getting off the big speedways, which people have problems with that, too, because, you know, NASCAR is meant for speed. That's kind of what they always aim towards once they started and down through history along the lines. Yeah, short tracks are are cool and they're very entertaining but you gotta have those big tracks but now we're going into what some people are calling road course overload and to steer funding into something that is going to be used heavily and then i have this one kind of i hate to sound like this but kind of an eyesore on the schedule that's not going to use all of that technology that they've groomed for better racing on asphalt it's kind of weird to me um, and, and so it's going to be interesting to see in the near future. Um, but moving on, uh, of course, Nathan and I, uh, as you guys who've been listening from the start know, or have been watching us on Twitter forever know, we're Denny Hamlin fans. And he caught a lot of flack because we had a chance to go seven for seven this weekend and we could have done it with Joey Logano or Denny Hamlin. But he he and Joey were fighting at the end, and Denny Hamlin decided not to move him. So I kind of wanted to get your guys' thoughts from that, because Denny basically came out and said, I'm not going to race him the same way that he would have raced me, I guess, Ooh, to be man. the beggar man. That's, that's tough. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I agree with him. I understand him trying to win the race the right way. I don't fault that. What I do fault is that if the guy in front of you races clean, then I would race him clean. If the guy in front does not race clean, which is usually Logano, I'm not necessarily sure if I would race him clean. It's just a matter of 
who's in front of me because I'm sort of the way I would probably race however they race me. And the fact that he was that respectful to somebody who doesn't normally race him with respect is really strange to me, at least. And I think part of that comes from Martinsville in 2017 with how which how much flack he got for not racing clean. It makes you wonder if he has that in the back of his head. It's like, you know, I'm not, I never want to do something like that again just because of how much flack he got for that. They've been at each other. Uh, I know it was a different Martinsville race, but at Martinsville with the whole Astral Track Racing comment, you I know. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Joey's in front of you. You've had beef with him before. He broke yeah, your back. I would definitely like, not hesitate. Like, I would love to see another Ricky uh, Rudd versus Dale Earnhardt style just total lash-out rivalry, and we could have that with Denny Hamlin and Joey Logano because they've been at each other's throats for so long. But but Denny's got to come back and and do something about it. Right. I think part of me is that he's thinking big picture. You know, he's he's got a 4.7 average finish. He's leading the points by a pretty significant distance. It makes me wonder that, hey, look, we want to – make as little enemies as possible during the season, try and make sure that no one's got any major beef with me for the rest of the year. But then again, like I said, if I usually would want to race somebody, how they race me. And if they don't race me clean, then I'm probably more willing to move them out of the way than I would somebody that normally wouldn't move me out of the way. Like say if Martin Truex is in front of you, then yeah, I'd probably hesitate to move him just because he's a pretty clean driver. He never really does anything, but someone like, Kyle Busch or Joey Logano in front of you, it's like, yeah, you're more likely to be a little pushy with them because you know they would do the same thing to you. I like that you said he he's looking for the big picture and and, and yet you you only stopped it this year. Um, <clears throat> I would think that he's looking more about his own portrait for his own office and his own big, humongous, Shop and building because he is a team owner now, even though he still races. So he's got to think on a little bit different level. Although, yet I was still disappointed by the fact that didn't just move him out of the way. You know, I don't think he had to put him in the wall. All you had to do is just on his back bumper and push him all the way into one and slide him up into the marbles, and he would have been fine. He would have took the win. He would have been the seventh different winner this year. Right, and that's what we all have been mm-hmm. wanting. We've all thought that this Fox, you know, best season ever thing is it's rolling right now. It's 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 meeting the expectations. But Denny kind of went a little bit more vanilla than I thought he would. Um, I know that he's kind of in the old guard. I know that he's one of the older drivers, one of the ones that's used to racing for points and stuff. But you've got a commanding lead. Um, it looks like if we're gonna have constant winners, we could have more than sixteen. Why don't you take the chance? to go checkers or wreckers and just move the guy out of the way, get your checkered flag and say, okay, I'm not only leading the points, but now I've got to win. There's no way that I could get knocked out of the, out of the playoff. Right. Position. I think that's definitely the biggest thing for me is that you don't really know if you're going to win a race in today's season. Look at 2011. Carl Edwards kind of had the same situation. He led the points the entire season and he only won a singular race. So with the season like this, it's very difficult to just assume that you're going to win because there's a lot of good drivers that haven't won yet. And especially if you're in his shoes, you run second or third every week. 
but you don't seem to have a car that can go out and lead every lap. And yeah, if you have a car that can win a race, you might as well take that chance. Don't necessarily wreck yourself trying to do it, but yeah, if you have to use somebody up, then I would definitely use somebody up, just not to the extent of wrecking them. And, and doing it and doing it at Bristol, where you're just bumper jabbing them out of the way. I mean, it's no different than Jeff Gordon knocking Rusty Wallace out of the way. You know, <clears throat> you just moved them. You didn't put them in the wall. You didn't stuff them in the wall. You really didn't do anything. I mean, it wasn't like what happened last spring at the first Bristol race to where they used each other up and third place won the race. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's all it would have took on this dirt race. But, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But Danny's going to have to kick himself in the butt for that one for quite a while. Yeah, and I think a lot of that came from how the restarts went earlier in the day. He was always the one guy that would go up top. Once they switched to single file, he would move right up to the top, pass the car, do it every restart. He probably thought he'd be able to do that in the end of the race and, and didn't end up working the way he thought it would. So I think it's sort of the same thing that happened to him in Loudon that one year with Harvick where he, he tried to move him once the fairway could have moved him again in turn three and he chose not to. He's like, you know what I did? I tried it once. I'm not going to try it again. And I think it's sort of the, like you said, it's the difference mentalities with the older drivers are a little more willing to race people clean than the younger ones. And well, Donald's obviously not young at this point, but still he's definitely a driver that I wouldn't have second thoughts about moving. Yeah, and I can respect, you know, that old guard mentality, if you want to put it that way, where we're going to race them clean. And, you know, you look at a guy like Mark Martin, who would just let you by at the beginning of a run and then just save his tires and then run right over you based on speed and not even touch you when he come past you later in the run and stuff like that. And I get it, uh, you know, points racing and stuff like that. But that's not NASCAR anymore. And, you know, sometimes it irks me to say that because I consider myself an old guard when it comes right. to my fandom. But that's not NASCAR anymore. Uh, you've got to take your opportunities when you get them. So I, I would love to see Denny come out here and – you know, he's already been hated last year because he won too much, uh, which is something I think is a is is something that we all get kind of forced into when we see a driver stink up the show or whatnot over and over and over because our favorite driver's not doing something. So I get the hate for that. But, you know, you've already got people who dislike you because of last year. You know, moving moving a a popular but also vastly not, unpopular yeah. driver is going to is 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 going to get your name talking even more uh, throughout the fan base. And, you know, everybody's going to want that rivalry. Everybody's going to want to see that action. And, you know, it's the same thing that happened with, with Kevin Harvick at, at Loudon. you know, like you said. Like, right. I think it's you know, sort of it, more of a – I guess you could say it's a big picture thing. I, I think rivalries are fun, but not to the extent where they get out of hand and you're wrecking each other every single week. I think he wants to try and avoid – something from snowballing if that makes sense so i i wouldn't blame him for using the bumper i just don't know if i would want him to to throw caution to the wind and do it every single week per se because he's he's got points to race for he's got he's got to keep it to the point of scoring as many points as he can every week getting as close to winning as he can every week and if you do have such a rivalry to the point where it was like say edwards and kazowski that one year you're going to 
you're going to sort of hinder your own chances at that point while trying to do so. Yeah, well, I mean, we could see something like that um, come out, but I think uh, even though Joey drives like a madman, I think he is level-headed enough and Denny's level-headed enough to know where the line is crossed. Um, so I, I, I think we could see uh, a good battle between the two without seeing anything like that. Right, I'm just thinking that I would move the guy once and – that's about it. I wouldn't want to be the guy. I would obviously I'd try and defuse the situation as much as I possibly can after I move the guy because I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to do what say Logano did with Kenseth in 2015, which is he moved the guy out of the way, sure, at a mile and a half, which is a little little different than the short track. And his biggest mistake there was not defusing the situation. He never talked to Kenseth. He never said, "Look, I didn't mean to wreck you. I just did what I had to do." He didn't. He didn't do that, and that's what got him wrecked at the end of the season. So if you're going to start a rivalry with somebody, you got to make sure it, it doesn't get out of hand. Yeah, well, I know, Chad, you, you were, you've you been around quite a lot longer than, than Nathan and I. So I said earlier uh, it was Ricky Rudd v. Dale Earnhardt as one of the rivalries, and I, I just came to mind that, oh, no, that was actually um, Jeff Bodine and, and Dale Earnhardt. So when you look at some of the rivalries from the past, kind of what me and Nate are talking about with, with the extremity of the Keselowski Edwards versus something more tame, what could you see as, as a healthy rivalry for NASCAR from the past that you would like to see between two guys in the future? Uh, yeah, the, the tame one was always the Dale Earnhardt and Terry Labonte at Bristol. I mean, they were both great there. They were great on short tracks, and yet they had a good rivalry on the short tracks, which which worked because if, if one of them was leading, the other one was going to get to him one way or another. Another one was Jeff Gordon and Rusty Wallace on the short tracks. Um, granted, it's nothing like something that Earnhardt would have had, but you go back in even further in time and you know everybody says the rivalry between Richard Petty and David Pearson they just loved to beat each other they didn't care who won they just wanted to win I mean they wouldn't necessarily rough each other up like some of the others as it progressed in the time closer to our time here now but then you look at those two they're what, 305 out of all of NASCAR's wins because they're number one and two on the list. And everything could keep going the way it would be. No, Matt Kenseth was a solid arm driver, too, that once you blew his head gasket, he took care of it for you. It didn't matter who it was. I would love to see more of that Kyle Busch and Slowski. I would love to see more of the Logano and Hamlin, or Logano and pretty much Harvick or anybody else, because I think Logano's put himself on a pedestal as, go come get me if you can, kind of deal. He'll fight and rub you no matter what. Um, but we've seen some of those calm down over the years to where he got your intrigue up, and then they left. Got your intrigue up, and then they left. Like they don't talk about them no more. But yeah, well, the next ones are 
next ones are going to come from all of these young guys at some point. You're going to have, even though they're real good friends, you're liable to have a Chase Elliott, Ryan Blaney buckle before long. Yeah, that would be something that would be fun. I mean, once Bubba gets competitive, I'm sure, and he, he and Blaney being best friends are going to go at it week after week after week. Um, and then, of course, Nathan and I, we've talked on the pod before about Noah Gregson coming up and his fire fireball of a personality. He's he's probably one that can get heated with some of the older drivers once he gets in the cup, um, which, which would be good too. Um, but I think, do you think that the lack of rivalries in those same veins as the ones you talked about earlier are are due to the sponsors and, and just the sport in general becoming more corporate? Oh, by far, 100%. I mean, you're, you're talking Fortune 500 companies that want to keep a, a leash on their driver. It doesn't matter that it's a 100-foot leash. At any point in time, they they would like to, in my opinion, have to yank it back to 50 feet if they don't see something else. They're not exactly going to just drop them and run all the time, but they want to be able to manipulate the way that they act. And, of course, you know, you, you sort of saw that after the – on track incident between Kyle Bush and Ron Hornaday because Joe Gibbs had to get Kyle Bush and sit down and have an issue talk with him. And he had to play the man against all the sponsors at that point in time. Yet that was a rivalry in the truck series. And Kyle still had his own trucks and he was driving for other people sometimes too. And, you know, that was something that came from the trucks all the way up to the top that got him involved. So you, when you look at all these corporate sponsors that are paying these 30 to $40 million deals to you know, cover a cup expense. And I know some of these like now, you know, they got four and five sponsors. So it might take eight to 10 million a piece for four or five sponsors like, uh, like Keslowski has. He's having to tame himself down and can be up to aggressive to a certain point. Then he kicks in because Roger Penske is about the most level-headed guy other than Joe Gibbs that I know as owners, where when they look at you, their look means more than their words. And I do believe that plays a lot into it because they're not losing money because of your stupidity behind the steering wheel. Yeah, well, Nathan, I guess I want to pass this off to you and kind of kind of morph it. You know, I kind of agree with what 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 my dad's saying there. That of course the the sponsors and everything are kind of holding the rein to their drivers because they don't want to have their image ruined by X, Y, or Z happening. But you know, you as a younger fan who came in uh, during the mid two thousands twenty tens era, you got to see. Uh, some rowdiness from the drivers, but you've also seen the decline that we've had in the in the tens right. and, and and the next couple of in the last couple of seasons. Um, for you, is it less interesting because of that? Oh, I man. know you're a you're a you're a fan, and you're always going to watch. But is it less interesting to you and potentially people that you want to get into the sport? Because I think from it really blood. From an entertainment standpoint, I think it definitely is. But then again, I, I kind of understand it from a driver's standpoint because I know that 
if things get to the level that Earnhardt and Bodine were at, where they were wrecking each other every week at one point and had to get stern talking tos and whatnot to stop, I think that I understand where they're coming from. Um, I, I would watch it either way. I think it's just a matter of the drivers today are a little more policed because they're under a bigger microscope and they have to they really have to watch what they're doing more than they did in the older days, I think. I, I love watching that TV as long as it's not my drivers. So <laughs> really, it's just a, a thing. I guess from my perspective, I understand the drivers having to tone it down just because I've kind of been the same way when I race. And like, I don't want to, I don't want to get into such a rivalry to where it, I'm worried that I'm not going to finish the race every week. Whereas I think back in the day, if Earnhardt and Bodine were in a sportsman race, they didn't have to worry about that. But in the cup race, I'm sure they did, but yeah. I think it's just a matter of being balancing between putting on a show and balancing racing for yourself. And you could tell the line just not definitely not easy to do it. So I'm, I do miss a little bit of the boys have at it from the entertainment standpoint. Yeah. Well, I think kind of it's a cat's 22 for NASCAR because you've got to keep the sponsors happy. Uh, whether that's from the team perspective or or overall with you know your your big sponsors like Bush and and all that, but you also got to keep the fans engaged and they're and they're promoting this kind of stuff with the rivalries of the past and wrecks and stuff in all their promotions for upcoming races and for ticket sales and stuff like that. So so they need it and they want it, but the people who foot the bill are like a little bit calmer when when they have that because I don't they don't want to stress their reputation to be, you know, rebellious or whatnot, depending on their brand identity. So it's, it's really a catch 22 for the whole industry, uh, because it, it's, it's something that you need, but you don't need too, too much of. That, that is definitely true. And <clears throat> I will say, even going back to the Gregson and Hemrick incident on pit road on at Atlanta, that, you know, I didn't get to see it until after the fact, but I heard about it and all of the fans going nuts while I was actually there. Um, after seeing it, you know, at certain points, you just got to let those drivers get it off their chest. They've already started. The crew members need to stay the heck away unless they're grabbing their own driver. At that point, if they're going to grab their driver, they need to turn him away from the other one get him as far away from the other driver as possible because another crew member grabbing the opposing driver it's almost like a double team at that point i don't see that working for anybody right well that's what happened to daniel suarez at phoenix i mean he got chokeholded by one of mcdowell's guys after he slammed it down on the pavement so I don't see that as fair. Uh, I think it's a really easy rule. You look at hockey, they give them about 30 seconds, no gloves, no helmets, you're good, and then we're going to stop you after about 30 seconds. NASCAR could adopt that if the corporate America would let them. So, yeah, and I think with that, uh, I want to thank my dad for coming on today, and, of course, Nathan, as always. Uh, we had a really good conversation. We'll be looking, to, looking forward to uh talking to my dad in next week's episode about his life and racing and stuff. I kind of have alluded that in t into happening this episode earlier in the recording, but um, 
We just kept running, so it's been quite a long time, and we'll have to see you guys next week. As always, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at FanFuelPodcast. That's an F, capital F, a capital F, and a capital P with a one tacked on at the end. Shout out at us. Say anything that you want uh, to say as far as ideas of future episodes. If you want to join us for a recording session or any ideas during the current race weekend that you want us to talk about in our recording episode on Tuesdays, like we always do. Um, Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks again. Bye.